Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's just not a whole lot of people like us who will buy businesses, run them relatively autonomously, look to keep management in place, and operate them with very low levels of leverage, which makes for a different dynamic of how businesses are run on a day-to-day basis. In his more than quarter century as investing guru at Insurer Markel, Tom Gaynor has traversed various booms, busts, fads, and panics to emerge as one of the most respected value investors in the land. Thanks in no small part to his eye for good buys, and hardly ever sells, Markel's stock has since catapulted from around $12 to more than $1,100 today. Some call the guy Baby Buffett. I call him our guest for the hour. Do stay with us. Full disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's, the best, most soulful market in Virginia. Delicious breakfast bar, exquisite coffee, smoothies, and baked goodies. Chef Jeffrey's prowess at the sushi bar. I can't say enough great things about this venerable joint, now in its 28th year in business. Visit them at the top of Carytown, hence the name, get it? And at elwoodthompson.com. Joining me in studio here in historic downtown R of VA is Tom Gaynor, co-CEO of the Markel Corporation, a financial holding company with a $16 billion market cap. It includes portfolio companies like AMF Bakery Systems, Partner MD, and Costa Farms. I, I do believe that you insure racehorses and weddings and, and other things correct, like that. That is correct, both, yes. How are you, sir? I am well. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you know the soundtrack we used at the top of the show was uh, Hold On by Wilson Phillips. Why, pray tell, did I start this broadcast with that track? Well, because you knew us well, uh, and we do tend to buy and hold things for a long time, so uh, that's a great musical intro. And it was it was naggingly atop the charts when you joined Markel uh, in the autumn of 1990. It was so. all in the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, what was that like? Everybody talks about this legend. We know you came from Davenport. You were on the sell side. Uh, this was looked at as kind of a bread and butter niche insurer, but you you know your your arrival turned it into something else. Take me back to 1990. Well, thanks. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, the, the, the long story, which is appropriate to get to, is that in uh, 1984, I was working for Davenport, and I read an article in Fortune magazine about Warren Buffett at that time. And that's the first exposure I'd ever had to, to Buffett. I believe it was the Carol Loomis uh, article in Fortune, which was quite famous. And I read it, and every word just dripped with common sense. The scales fell from my eyes in terms of the, the way to be a good investor. And I went into the guy that I worked with at the time, and I said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy, Warren Buffet? And he, uh, <laughs> he said, "That's it's Buffett, you idiot, and threw me out of his office. And I went over and looked at the Standard & Poor's tear sheet, which was the cutting-edge financial technology at the time. And I saw the numbers, and it was obviously uh, – quite successful. I was an accountant by training. I could see that it was a successful business, but it was selling for about $1,000 a share. And as a 22-year-old idiot, I thought, well, no stock could possibly be worth $1,000 a share. So I didn't buy it. But the good thing is I became aware of it. So what was the genius of that Loomis piece? I'll pull it up and share it with our listeners. Is it that this person bought a stayed asset and took cash flows and invested them into more exciting things? I would say it was much more a human interest story, and it was telling you who Warren Buffett was as a person and how he thought about things and how he um, how he managed investments was really an outgrowth of how he thought about things and who he was as a person. 
But that idea and that way of doing things struck me as very logical and common sense. So to make a, a long story short, um, I was at Davenport from 84 through 90, observed uh, Berkshire. In 86, Markel went public. And by luck of the draw, I was the analyst at Davenport who happened to follow them. And I observed that here at Markel, you had a specialty insurance-based business that was profitable. Um, and that was not a common thing in the insurance business at that time. And Steve Markell, who's the vice chairman of the firm, was willing to make long-term equity investments as opposed to just investing in fixed income securities. So that was really the same bones and the same architecture that Buffett had put in place at Berkshire and built Berkshire. So in 1990, when uh, Markell did one of their classic buying a company that was bigger than they were, uh, the investment portfolio got bigger as a, as a part of that. Steve had been doing things single-handedly, thought he might like a wingman. He and I, since from 86 through 90, had gotten to know one another. Um, and he said something to me about coming out there. And I thought, great, that was fantastic. Because at this point, I was 28 years old. And I thought uh, we would have the chance of building something fantastic, the next Berkshire Hathaway kind of thing. And it happened to be right here in Richmond, Virginia, where I lived. So wow. that's so, how that happened. Well, I, I'd love to unpack this. So for the most... What what is the special sauce aside from you know Warren Buffett likes to have his sauce steaks and cherry cokes and not whatnot? <laughs> but what is he doing? He's taking idiosyncratic insurance premiums. And yes, you can. There's obviously a market for a various duration fixed income things. You take the premiums and you want to be solvent in case there are catas- catastrophes and you have to pay things out. But you also want upside. If you're if you're getting if you have this uh, embarrassment of riches and the premiums keep pouring in and you have a smart way of channeling those into undervalued assets or trading at a discount of book, you're constantly growing the pie. You're constantly building the pie. So was that, did you sell Steve Markell on that vision? I mean, what was, what happened in 1990? He figured I could take this, this, uh, you know, this tame sell side guy and turn him into like a, a private equity animal. No, Steve and I were uh, in full, complete intellectual agreement from, from day one. So there was never really any process by which either one of us was trying to convince something, uh, the other of something different. We both believed that this was a good idea. Now, to unpack your statement, so in the realm of insurance and to why specialty insurance, it's because in commodity insurance, which is you know, sort of the other end of the spectrum than specialty insurance, there's a lot of people that can do it, and it's quite competitive. And in the late 80s, early 90s, interest rates were much higher than they are right now. So a lot of companies would, uh, in effect, be willing to lose money on the business of insurance itself just to get the cash flow of holding the money uh, because you could turn around and invest it in bonds at very high rates of interest and, and make your money that way. Mm-hmm. Markel was never satisfied or uh, interested in doing things just like everybody else. It's a very creative place. People willing to try to figure out ways of helping customers and providing insurance coverages that most people won't do. So one of the things you, that we bring to the table when we do that is specialized intellectual knowledge. So you made a joke about racehorses uh, or, or weddings. Uh, again, because the size of that market is small, you have to have somebody who really knows horses to insure horses um, and what the risks are and where uh, the races are and, and the breeding and all of those aspects of things. And because you're able to have a great deal of knowledge about 
uh, that world and perhaps able to provide information and consulting and ways in which you can keep losses down. Um, you get to write insurance where instead of for every dollar coming in, instead of a dollar five going out, maybe it's only 95 cents going out. And what would we what we would invest differently is that five cents that would stick to the ribs. That, because we never thought it would have to leave the company, that we could invest with an eternal mindset and a much longer uh, term way of thinking than most other insurance companies would be constrained to do. So you're using the intellectual property and the kind of the inside baseball know-how and the granularity almost as a as a moat, as an inoculation against commoditization. Like, That's exactly right. Why isn't a big insurer bolting on, you know, weddings? And what did I hear? Wedding tents? Uh, I, well, it's, it's sort of special event coverage. So, for instance, if you have a wedding scheduled for May 15th, and it's right here in Richmond, Virginia. Well, May 15th, you're, you're scheduling that months in advance. Seems like that ought to be a good time. Well, if it ends up uh, in the middle of a pouring down rainstorm or windstorm or something and uh, your outdoor wedding gets gets canceled or a tent blows away or something like that, uh, we, we it, in effect, cover you for that sort of thing. Wow. And it was so competitive that it was bringing in excess premiums. Uh, well, that would be the sort of thing that is not as competitive uh, as compared to not auto or homeowners. Sorry, so lucrative that it was well, bringing in um, competitively. You, you get paid for two different things. So, for instance, if you're insuring autos or homeowners, which are sort of the classic lines that you would think of as big, bulky commodity lines of insurance, you're bringing uh, your financial capacity to that. And, and it's very actuarial. All of the companies that are involved, Geico, one of them, Progressive, State Farm, all state folks like that, they have extremely granular and good data on what losses should be. So you need a big balance sheet to do that, but it's, it's priced very, very thin. Um, when, you're, when you're insuring weddings or, or racehorses or those other kinds of things that we do, there just isn't as much data. So in addition to the financial capital that anybody would have to have, what you also bring to the table is a specialized expert who knows how to underwrite and price that sort of risk. Mm. And, you know, the larger companies are just not set up to accommodate all the nook and cranny and individual entrepreneurial kind of people that it would take to write that kind of business. Let me ask you, within your portfolio, uh, your public markets portfolio, is the, is, does the mutual, you know, admiration stuff extend to you holding Berkshire? Oh, now absolutely. that you're big and you can afford the thousand <laughs> or fifty thousand dollars, whatever it's at. No, point of fact, that was the very first stock that that we bought uh, when when I joined uh, uh, Mark Allen. We still own that stock. What it's, was in the portfolio when you joined? Out of curiosity, um, at real that, estate and fixed income, largely fixed income, and uh, that was separate and distinct from from what I was managing. And in fact, on day one, when I walked in the door, Steve allocated two million dollars. Uh, for me to manage. Wow. Now, the total balance sheet at that time was probably on the order of 60 or $70 million. So $2 million wasn't insignificant, but neither was it all of it. Um, and then quickly, within the first year, uh, he decided he liked me. I decided I liked him. He sort of kept pushing more and more of the chips over under <laughs> under my purview to manage. Uh, but that was all the, the equity investment portfolio. There was a, a separate person at Markel who managed the fixed income portfolio, who, by the way, is still there today. Um, and I became the chief investment officer, so I became responsible 
for the fixed income as, as well as the equity. But uh, she is still part of the team and, and uh, reports directly to me. So I have oversight over that. Can you give me an idea for how much book value has changed since you were there? It surely must be in your head somewhere. It would correspond to the same uh, very pleasant number that you, you started out with when the, the stock was $12. Uh, maybe the book value was uh, 9 or 10 or something like that. Today, the stock's $1,100. Wow. So uh, just you just add zeros to it. It's uh, 8 900 bucks, something like that. But the, the ratio of the change in book value and the change in the market price has been pretty similar for a long period of time. I I remember when I first called you when I got here a few years ago and we met, you guys have a pretty modest uh, office in suburban Richmond. And I remember there was a plaque near the elevator and uh, some uh, assistant there telling me that we expect people here to answer their own calls. It's not a stock option culture. Um, it's an ownership culture. It's a roll up your sleeves and, and solve things culture. And I'm looking at the Markel style, which was on a plaque near the elevator. Um, it says, our pledge to shareholders is that we will build the financial value of our company. We respect our relationship with our suppliers and have a commitment to our communities. We are encouraged to look for a better way to do things, to challenge management. We have the ability to make decisions or alter a course quickly. The Markel approach is one of spontaneity and flexibility. This requires a respect for authority, but a disdain of bureaucracy. Blows my mind that you're almost like a $16 billion market cap company and you've managed culturally to kind of keep bureaucracy at bay. I mean, you've answered your calls, you you know, you handle a lot of things on your own. I mean, there are certain, you know, uh, Reg FD and, and SEC things that you have to deal with, with paperwork and compliance, but it's it's hard for you to kind of fly under the radar now. Like you go to the Berkshire annual confab and you guys have your own groupies, as it were, and, and you know, the Tom Gaynorites coming out to see you. <laughs> well, um, what got us here is every word of that Markel style. So, we, we do fight the kudzu of bureaucracy uh, relentlessly, and there are a lot of forces that kind of slather that on um, that happen internally and, and externally. But we do our very best to keep that to a minimum. And, you know, the story is not apocryphal. I was um, markets editor at Business Week for a while, and before I came here, I believe it was um, – on the 25th anniversary of the crash of 87, the editors asked me to do a screen, run a screen on the best performing stocks in the 25 years since. And, you know, the usual suspects, I think, Oracle, uh, United Health, there, the Health, there's a survivorship bias and everything. And I swear I'll never forget this. And I, I swear it's the last time I'll tell this story. Number three or number four pops up. Uh, oh, I, I think another one was Fastenal, the Fastener company, which is kind of very counterintuitive, but it shows you what a moat is. Um, and then there's one that says Markel, Glen Allen, Virginia. And I'm looking around the table of editors, and this one market editor from Bloomberg is like, Markel, is that a biotech? What is that thing? They're all like scratching their heads. And you were fine when you heard that. Like you don't need, you don't need the glory. You're happy doing what you're doing. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, you're not the you're not the last person who would have pronounced it Markel. Uh, we still get that. And in fact, you know, if you pick up the phone, somebody uh, wants to speak to Mr. Markel or talk to somebody from the Markle Corporation, that's a pretty good tell that uh, that's that's a cold call and somebody who's, who's not done their homework. But that still happens today. So to some degree, we're, we're not in the, the limelight that much. We operate in a lot of uh, small, unconnected markets. So one thing doesn't have anything to do with the other. I mean, you mentioned some of the uh, insurance lines we're in. It, it's highly unlikely that somebody uh, is insuring a racehorse 
and a wedding and is buying plants from uh, Costa and baking bread on AMF equipment. So these are all very separate and distinct businesses that tend not to be linked together in people's minds. And that helps us stay grounded and stay under the, the radar to some degree. Take one of those businesses because there's no rhyme or reason. If I want to artificially you know, replicate an AI Tom Gainer, a Gainatron 5000, right? What is the rhyme or reason between an AMF bakery um, uh, you know, Costa Gardens, the gardening company, what the the nursery company in Miami, Florida, uh, Partner MD. Um, what do you guys take control of CapTech? Is that a controlling equity stake, or what kind of is the connective tissue between all these things? Is it competitive moat? Is it value? Well, values, I think, is the, the first level of connecting tissue. So Markel's a values-based company, and we work very hard to take care of our customers, take care of our associates, uh, take care of our uh, shareholders and the capital providers. And as long as we turn ourselves inside out to solve other people's problems, we tend to get compensated reasonably well for doing so. So that's sort of the first layer, I would say, values rather than than value, long-term uh, in, in mindset, a way of thinking about things. And each of those companies that you listed, as, as well as anything else that we're in, involved in, they tend to be experts at what they do. They tend to be some of the leading companies in the markets that they serve. So they have customers who they are the best in the world at taking care of, um, and they tend to be profitable as a result. So I would suggest that they have a, a lot in common and that they're values-based organizations that do a great job of just taking care of their customers and figuring out how to solve other people's problems. Wow. I thought it was such high praise when uh, uh, Jason Zweig, who's a friend of the show, he's been on uh, a couple of times, uh, he ran a story in uh, 2015 in the Wall Street Journal, like Warren Buffett, another folksy investor turns patience into profit. And you must have blushed when it had Charlie Munger's statue and Warren Buffett's statue and a guy chiseling your face, Tom Gaynor, next to them as kind of these three pillars of, of Berkshirean value investing. Um, that kind of blew my mind. I thought you weren't going to be on this radar, but it's kind of hard to stay quiet. And in it, he noticed uh, one of the you know huge competitive advantages you had is that Markel's costs are so low that he can manage its multi-billion dollar stock portfolio for less than 0.01% in annual expenses, about 170th the cost of the average U.S. stock mutual fund. Moreover, um, you look for profitable businesses with low debt, good management, plenty of opportunities to invest future profits, and reasonably cheap stock, which is brings us to the here and now, Tom Gaynor. Everyone tells us that this is the most overvalued market since at least Y2K, that nothing is cheap. It was on the cover of The Economist, that uh, nothing is really disrupted anymore. It's a very obverse of 10 years ago in the financial crisis. How do you still find something that hasn't been pecked at at private equity or the IPO market or a foreign buyer? Well, um, it is slim pickings out there right now, and it is hard to find things that you would uh, rate as historically undervalued, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing out there. Um, and there's there's a couple of reasons for for those. For instance, one of the companies that we bought a couple of years ago, a company called Cottrell that makes auto trailers that haul cars up and down the road, that's a cyclical business. So in good years, when auto sales are going up and there's plenty of demand, that business does very well. In years in which auto sales are flat or declining, uh, that business struggles, and they, they do their very best, frankly, to, to just operate in the black at all in, in eras like that. So with that degree of cyclicality, 
and up and down, that tends to not be uh, easily financed by people who are using a lot of debt capital to buy things. Um, but because we have that long-term view and are willing to look at things over five, 10, uh, and longer kind of time frames, we're, we're able to absorb the day-to-day or month-to-month or year-to-year volatility that some businesses might have because we think they produce good returns on capital over time. And frankly, uh, despite the fact that there are a lot of things that are more richly priced than what they used to be, uh, if, you, if you look out over 5, 10, 20-year timeframes, it's, it's not impossible to identify good businesses that you'd like to own for those kinds of timeframes um, and make productive investments. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Tom Gaynor, a veteran value investor, co-CEO of Markel Corporation, the financial holding giant here in central Virginia. Um, I cannot look or read anything today that does not at some point lament the death of value investing, which I figure must be a contraindicator to you. As you and our listeners know, it's been all about Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, um, Bitcoin, high beta concepts, forget about profitability, invest, invest, invest. Uh, The VC market has been really rich. The IPO market has been hail. Unprofitable companies like Spotify want to IPO at this point, which reminds me to kind of another point in history. In my short investing life, in 99 and 2000, everybody was saying value was dead. And the Warren Buffett way of doing things was, you know, that was antiquated. Do you feel like this might be a a contraindicator, a, a, a top for growth, and maybe it's time to truly prioritize something that has, it's it's not just a dog value. At this point, it's a forgotten dog with fleas. Well, uh, you, you brought up at least 12 different topics. In, I like in, to do that. Yeah. That's why I get the big bucks, Tom Gaynor. <laughs> well, good for you, but I can only answer maybe one question at Please a time. Do. So first off, the notion of value investing being dead, um, in, and, and then you, you immediately went into you know, Facebook or Google or Amazon or, or what have you. Um, The constraint and the problems with value investing or why it's unpopular right now, I would say is more because indexing is very popular. And indexing in and of itself, because it has worked so well for a period of time, becomes a bit of a self-perpetuating sort of thing where it it attracts additional funds and because there's more money coming in and a limited set of companies in the index – Well, that means there's more money going to be chasing the exact same numbers of names, supply and demand. The prices of those are going to go up. So what I would say is— So wait, hold up. If more money is shoveled at the likes of Vanguard, BlackRock, Schwab, um, you know, the ETF providers, and the index is, say, stationary, the the Russell 3000 or the S&P 500— more of that kind of has to cram into buying the same portfolios. That's exactly right. And so what happens is that to some degree, people are buying something without thinking about what it may or may not be worth. And I, and I think that's the real distinction uh, to make first off is that the popularity of indexing in and of itself has diminished the returns from going out there and turning over uh, rocks and doing fundamental analysis and saying, look, this is undervalued or this is worth more than it's selling for. Well, the money just isn't being allocated in that way right now. So it gets very frustrating for somebody who might have done good investigative work and good fundamental research to think they found something that's undervalued and, and the market just doesn't seem to care about that sort of thing. But you don't have to worry about that. You have these premiums coming in. Well, yes, having cash flow coming in is very helpful, uh, and it helps support that long-term idea. But so my point would be that that sort of uh, indexing 
mania right now uh, is, I suspect, somewhat cyclical. These things do come and go. There was a time in the late 1990s where the S&P 500 had had a very good run. I'm thinking in the sort of 95 to 98 time frame before the dot-com sure. sort of took on the, the next mm-hmm. layer. And some passive ways of investing money and money and investing money on, to use a sort of a phrase, autopilot, re- really took over. Uh, and value investors found themselves very out of phase with the market. Now, I want to segue in that the specific names that you cited as perhaps being examples of things that are are overvalued, um, I may or may not agree with that, uh, especially uh, depending on whatever company it is and what price it is selling at. And I would cite, for instance, if you go to Amazon and you read the very first shareholder letter that Jeff Bezos wrote, what he talks about is maximizing the cash flow per share of Amazon. Um, and frankly, his track record in having done so is a lot better than what it's publicly thought to be or loosely thought to be. If you, if you really do your homework and look at the way in which that business has degenerated cash over a long period of time, it's completely consistent with a value-based investor, which ultimately what you mean is a discounted cash flow. So what today is the net present value of the stream of cash flows that you expect in the future? That That's what value investing is really about. Did you ever buy Amazon? Did you ever nibble yes. on it? Yes, we own Amazon. It's so funny. Bill Miller once, I, I had an internship with the New York Times and uh, he took my call, and I interviewed him in 2005, and he was pounding the table on Amazon. And he was right, and I wish I had listened to him then and hadn't been so stubborn so and stupid. So this is from a cash flow harvesting perspective because from a profitability perspective, maybe that maybe you look at that as an accountant. It's not that important. This well, guy no, can generate enormous revenues, return on invested capital. Co- correct. And actually the accounting is interesting as well because one of the things that you see happen at Amazon, if you're an accountant, and I am an accountant, is you can make – Uh, certain judgments and elections as to how much of your spending you're going to expense and period and call that an expense period by period and how much you capitalize and sort of invest and lay out but only charge that back into your earnings over long periods of time. So for instance, uh, retailer to retailer, if you take Amazon versus a, a retailer that has more bricks and mortars, Amazon is going to be spending money on their systems, Mm -hmm. on advertising, on uh, the things it takes to get new customers uh, connected into the system. A brick and mortar, um, and and they're going to expense every penny of that as they spend it. If you have a brick and mortar retailer, they're doing the exact same things, the same strategy. But when you build a physical location or, you know, and, and build a building in the parking lots and all the infrastructure that go, goes along with that, you lay out a bunch of cash today but you set that up on your balance sheet and you expense that over a long period of time. And that's appropriate accounting both ways. Mm. But if you if you compare apples to apples and start to turn things into cash expenditures versus cash returns, um, you, f- you find that the picture looks a lot more similar than what you might think at first glance. Mm. You talked about the problem of self-fulfilling prophecy uh, with traditional indexing, capitalization-weighted indexing. I mean, the biggest components of the S&P 500, they only get bigger if the S&P 500 goes up. Is there a better mousetrap? Should it be maybe equal-weighted? Are you into kind of, would you prefer fundamental in- indexing or the, the dimensional fellows, which think that you should use factors in going in and 
you know, when things get more expensive, you should move them into things that are are cheaper. And and even as an extension of that, I know I keep cramming these questions. Maybe robo advising as a as a as a forced discipline to kind of have to to sell the great names, which are hard to part ways with after all, right? And put them into cheaper names. Well, I think what you're getting to is you, if you named off a series of of techniques and methods, and and different folks are all very good. You know, there's an old joke that in the world of finance, you take good ideas and you do them so much that they ultimately become bad ideas. So at the end of the day, all of the things that are that you just mentioned, uh, whether it's cap-weighted index, market uh, fundamental-weighted index, balance, I mean, whatever technique is out there, normally has a sound theoretical basis when it starts. And when people say, hey, this would be a better way to do things, they're usually right about that. Uh, but then as money flows into it and it works, then as somewhere along the way, it starts to, to, to morph from a good idea into a bad one because it just gets, it gets, it goes from done to overdone. And that, sure. that's just what happens in the world of finance. It's almost Minsky-esque, right? Uh, the uncertainty principle. Yes. Right. If they keep kind of doing it and piling onto it at some point, that certainty is going to create its exactly. own Exactly. And the main linking, and, it, and it, it connects to the Minsky principle, is when you, when you unplug your mind, when, when you stop thinking, that's when you're in trouble. So mm. the ideas and the techniques in and of themselves are neither good nor bad. And in most cases, at the beginning, they tend to be thoughtfully done. But I think it's the uh, comedian Stephen Wright who talks about a conclusion is what you get to when you're tired of thinking. Right. right. So... <laughs> <laughs> that happens in the world of finance because human beings, you know, we're we're all lazy and thinking is really, really hard. Sure. Sometimes you'd like a day off. Right. <laughs> I do have to ask you, Tom, within, uh, you know, your your exposure, you're clearly very correlated to the fortunes of, of Markel, this company that you've been with since 1990, both from an equity and, a, uh, you know, single man uh, uh, you know, payroll perspective. What doesn't correlate with you? Or what do you kind of take caution to invest money in that does not correlate with what Markel is doing? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question, but... What zags when you're zigging? Uh, you know, not a whole lot. The, the fact of the matter is, is that personally, I am all in uh, on Markel. And uh, while modern portfolio theory is predicated on the notion of things not being correlated with one another and, and benefits that come from diversification. Uh, there's, there's a certain amount of that that is true, just like all financial ideas, you just sort of start out in truth, but it, but it gets overdone. And in moments of crisis, I would suggest to you that the correlation of everything to everything else approaches 1.0. And if you look at the 2008, 2009 financial crisis or uh, the, the dot-com uh, implosion. Everything fell down the tube. Exactly. So am, am I exaggerating a little bit to say the correlation is 1.0? Sure, I'm doing that to make a point. But it, it trends in that direction. And diversification and the academic benefits that are, that are uh, trotted out and any kind of study that you see, uh, they tend, that tends to be true on sunny days. When, when you don't really care, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But you're looking matter. at it over the arc of, a, of, a, of an investing lifetime. I mean, a 50, 60-year period, booms and busts. Like, I, I often think, you know, it's like the old Jack Bogle thing. Some people would say that the S&P 500 is all the diversification anybody needs. You don't have to, 
you don't have to boil the ocean, right? 500 companies, they get roughly half of their revenue abroad. Others would say, no, it's not granular enough. It's not getting you enough of the frontier, sub-Saharan Africa, Peru, Colombia, some of these countries that are growing. Maybe you have to add more of a commodities exposure in addition to international. Maybe you have to look at capitalizations. Am I invested in international value enough? I mean, your portfolio is decidedly U.S.-centric. Well, uh, that also is a true and not true statement. So, for instance, one of the things I would say is, uh, you know, Ben Graham, who was the father mm -hmm. of value investing, Warren Buffett's teacher at, at, at Columbia, often had a technique where he would sort of label one company, Company A, and he would give you the finances for that. He would label another company, Company B, and sometimes he would change some of the accounting uh, uh, treatments or judgments or some of the some of the ways in which information was presented, but the same thing. And he would uh, sort of challenge his students to analyze company A and company B and make make uh, distinctions or opinions about them. And many times they were the same company. And he was trying to make a point. And and to, to your point, uh, I would I joke, I say in that company A, company B sort of sense, uh, let's say company A is Caterpillar Tractor and company B is Honda Motor. Now they both make uh, machines and engines that move people or stuff from point A to point B. Which one is a U.S. company and which one is an international company? Interesting. Oh, you got to answer the question. You well, were, I would uh, think of a Caterpillar as an international company. I would think of a, a – I would think as the problem is a Honda Motors – Right, as a Japan company, but then there are whole issues with cross ownership and other distortions over there. I'm getting to buy a US company, a US multinational with US transparency requirements and corporate governance requirements that is probably in hundreds of countries. Well, that's a long answer. I just asked you which one is the domestic company and which one is the international company. You gotta, there isn't gotta a pay. domestic in that. There isn't a domestic in that. Well, Honda makes vehicles in the United States. Are we talking about apples and apples? I'm just asking you. I've given you an exam. I've given you two companies, and it's a multiple choice. Uh, you have to you have to say true, false, or, or A or B. Which one would you label as the domestic company, and which one would you label as the international company? I'm about to have an aneurysm. I can't. I can't answer that. No, you tell me. Well, then flip a coin. <laughs> Honda's the domestic company. Okay. Oddly enough. Well, interestingly enough, I, I, I joke. I say, depending on my mood as the professor, I will give you either an A or an F. Depending on my mood, not the facts, because if you looked at a brokerage statement or any kind of financial report, what you would tend to see is that Caterpillar would be listed as a sure. U.S. company and Honda as an international company because that's where they're headquartered. You know, Caterpillar's in Peoria, Illinois. Honda is in Japan. As a practical matter, Caterpillar does more business outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., and Honda's largest markets are in North America. So I would actually argue in economically substantive terms, Caterpillar is an international company and Honda is more of a domestic company. Tom Gaynor with the Jedi mind trick, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you look at uh, most of the large companies that you would think of as U.S. companies, I think the rough percentage of revenues generated outside the U.S. by the Fortune 500 is pretty close to 50% these days. So you do get a geographic spread of business uh, with U.S. headquartered companies. That said, we also uh, own some investments in companies that are headquartered outside the U.S., but you really do get that, that global spread um, with large multinational companies. So tell me what happens when you buy kind of a, a, an ideal investment. Um, you're very simpatico with management. You like what they have in mind culturally. You're not there to strip it and flip it. 
that kind of do a Burger King or Hertz uh, or something like that. You 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 want to love each other. That is exactly right. So how does it work? How did it work with AMF Bakery? Take me take me back to that. Why did that stand out? I think of AMF. I think of working on some sort of bowling bankruptcy thing when I was at Goldman. It seems to have an infamous name, but the bakery is a crown jewel. Well, AMF in and of itself uh, stood for American Machine and Foundry, if I recall. And that was a conglomerate. I I think Erwin Jacobs uh, Mm -hmm. had had control of that back in the maybe the 60s or 1970s. And like a conglomerate, they had a lot of businesses embedded behind those letters AMF. So yeah, they had a bowling business and that was bowling equipment and pin setters and, and alleys. But they also, I believe at one time, owned Harley Davidson Motor Cycles. Wow. I believe they made bicycles. If you're a fan of the movie uh, Breaking Away uh, and the little little Indy 500 and the, the scene there where there's the bike race, those are AMF bicycles wow. that people are riding. Uh, I believe they had a, a recreational boat business. They had a <laughs> sewing machine business. They had a number of things. Um, it ended up being controlled locally here in Richmond, Virginia. And one of the segments of that was the AMF bakery equipment business that bake, that provides the equipment that would be used to, to bake commercial uh, grade uh, buns and rolls and loaves of breads, things like that. So, for instance, if, if you eat a hamburger at McDonald's or, or Wendy's or a place like that, odds are that uh, that bun was baked on AMF equipment. Uh, the, the when was that an attraction? When did you buy that? When was that it attractive? It was bought back in 2005. Um, I happened to know the gentleman who was the CEO of the company at that time. It was being sold. Uh, he was uh, concerned about where it would go and what his future would be. He mentioned to me that the company was for sale, so we uh, lobbed in the notion that we might be interested, and we got connected to the, the selling group and, and the sellers and just participated in the process by which they were thinking about how, how to figure out how to how to sell their business, and, and fortunately, we ended up with it. Um, and one of the things we liked about it, again, uh, the gentleman who ran it still runs it today. We thought he was talented. We thought he was honest. He was doing a good job of running the business. We thought bread was something that people have been eating for thousands of years and probably would continue to eat for as long as I was going to be alive to the long-term time horizon. They were the leader in, in what they did and had a, a leading market share position, which means that their customers were saying they were better at providing this equipment than their competitors. That, that's what it means to be a market leader. So all of those things lined up, and we have found it to be true. And they've done very well, and we're, we're delighted with that company. So um, the advantages for them, like, obviously, they don't have to deal with a private equity pirate. I just remember a lot of the fear of stripping and flipping, and are they are they going to lay off the entire workforce? Are they going to get rid of me? And this was my baby the whole time. Uh, what what was the Markel way with them internally? I mean, did you just say, listen, we're here, we're going to bring down your cost of capital because we have access to a great balance sheet? I mean, how does it work? What's the symbiosis? Well, I think probably the best way to put your thumb on it and, and say what's different about AMF under Markel ownership is that, you know, prior to us showing up, they would have had some reasonable but meaningful levels of debt on their balance sheet. And if you think about their customers on a day when a machine went down and a commercial bakery wasn't working because something was wrong with the AMF equipment, that was a really bad day for AMF because they had an unhappy customer and they had interest bills to pay and financial obligations to meet at the same time. So that that just creates a, a very high-pressure, tough situation. And when we showed up, I said to the gentleman who runs it, I said, look, um, I'm not rooting for machines to break, 
but I know that they do from time to time in the real world. And instead of that being a bad day, I now want that to be a good day. I want that to be the day that you show up, you fix it, and make your customers happy that you were the leading expert and you took care of them. And if you do that, what you'll see happen is that you'll develop a reputation and a well-earned reputation as being the dependable go-to guys who help bakers make their bakeries run. And over a period of time, you'll be paid fairly for your expertise and your reliability and your dependability. So we were able to change the time frames that they thought about and the way in which they were able to just totally de- uh, dedicate themselves to their customers. And as such, in a, in a no-growth industry or a very modest growth industry, we've, we've grown quite substantially over over a long period of time as we've picked up market share and done some tuck-in acquisitions and just tried to get bigger and better at taking care of bakers. Tell me about Costa, which you and I were joking. I think Warren Buffett once quipped that he would never buy a company in Florida because of the way that the place is a transient culture and whatnot. But you have a couple of portfolio companies in Miami, my hometown. Like, what, what do we make? Well, uh, Costa is the leading grower of houseplants in the world. And they uh, have the, the major uh, home improvement retailers and general merchandise re- retailers as their customers. Uh, third-generation Cuban immigrant family that started out with very modest uh, farming operations and aspirations and just through three generations have continued to build that business step-by-step uh, by, step by, again, just taking care of their customers. Uh, it's a very sophisticated operation. They use all of the technology that you can imagine to make sure that plants are getting the right nutrients, right amount of sunshine, right amount of uh, feed, uh, all of the all the right temperature, all of those sorts of things, um, and they have managed to work well uh, with the companies like Home Depot and, and Lowe's and Walmart that have thousands of stores all around the country and uh, deal with the logistics of growing something in South Florida and a couple other places around the country and getting it on the shelves of those kinds of stores, whether that be in Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, Texas, what what have you, while the plant is still alive. That's that's a tough technical task to do, and they've managed to do that through th- three generations, and they're wonderful people. So it's it's delightful to be associated with them um, and have them as part of the Markel family. How, how does it work? How did you even get that lead? Or do you have scouts out there, or people who find these, these diamonds in the rough for you? Well, that was in and of itself a spectacular story. Um, there was a gentleman named Larry Cunningham who wrote a book called Berkshire Beyond Buffett, mm-hmm. and he was talking about what – uh, might happen to to Berkshire at the time that Warren Buffett was no longer there. And in the very last chapter of the book, and I believe it's on page 225 of Memory Serves, uh, he raises the question, well, are there any other companies that are following a similar approach and doing similar things and thinking about life the same way? And he mentions Markel, and he writes a couple of paragraphs about us that were quite flattering and very positive about what we were doing. Uh, there was a advisor of the Costa family that happened to read that book and saw that, and he called us and said, will you talk to us? And we chatted a little bit about what they did, and we said, we'd be delighted to talk to you. So we went down to Florida, met them, spent uh, some time getting to know them. Uh, They came up to Richmond to meet us and do some due diligence on on Mark Allen. Pretty quickly, uh, we realized that both the Costa family and 
the Markel organization are based on the same values and that we could work well together. And it's been a dream. Are they are, are these um, acquisition targets typically looking at you versus private equity bids? Because we know there's a lot of money out there. It's voracious. It's seeking a lot of the things, maybe even sometimes culturally, but from a return hurdle perspective. But maybe at times they would take a smaller bid from you because of the 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 long term mindedness. That, that's that's correct. And and I tell people that categorically, there are really only three kinds of buyers of a business. So there's strategic buyers. And strategic buyers are somewhat in the business that you're in right now. And they love your revenues and they hate your expenses. They want to they add your revenues into their system mm-hmm. and lower your expenses. Well, revenues are revenues. That's easy. Expenses typically equal people. So uh, if a strategic buyer buys you, you don't need two heads of sales or two chief financial officers or two heads of marketing or two heads of production. And typically, the strategic buyer is going to have their people run the show. So there are a lot of buyer, a lot of sellers who don't want to sell to a strategic buyer because they know that their company will be absorbed into that. It's not right or wrong. It's just a fact of life. Another category are the private equity groups, and there are a lot of them out there. There's a lot of money in private equity. Private equity, generally speaking, can pay a higher price than what we do, as can the strategics. But one of the features of private equity is that within three, five, seven years, the process of buying the company is going to happen again because the way in which private equity people get paid and experience their returns is through the subsequent sale of a company most frequently. So um, whatever kind of turmoil or anguish you had to go through to sell a company, uh, you're going to have to do it again uh, in in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. Some people don't want to sign up for that or sign up for uh, leverage, which would quite often be the case in a private equity transaction. Take so on the, a ton of debt. Exactly. So the, the third kind of buyer strategically are people like us, and there are just not a whole lot of people like us who will buy businesses, run them relatively autonomously, keep look to keep management in place, and operate them with very low levels of leverage, which uh, you know makes for a different dynamic of how businesses are run on a day-to-day basis. So there's just not a long list of, of people who approach things like us. And fortunately, uh, from the standing start of buying AMF in 2005, uh, it was 2008 before we did our next deal, so a three-year period, uh, but the pace has has picked up, and as the size and scale of Markel Ventures has grown, our reputation has grown. So uh, we do get some income inbound phone calls these days. <laughs> Mr. Markel, uh, is there a Mr. Markel there? There's. I'm so flattered that you return my calls. <laughs> I've only been nagging you to come on this show for what three, four years. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Tom Gaynor, co-CEO of Markel Corporation, the financial holding giant here in Central Virginia, uh, which owns. Uh, a, a huge variety of private and public companies. I mean, you've also been associated with everything from CarMax, uh, Disney, Marriott. Um, you are an omnivore. Well, um, CarMax, Disney, and Marriott, to name three, that, that's actually, there's an interesting commonality that those three companies share. And there are a lot of other companies in the portfolio that would share the same uh, trait. And what that is, is those three companies are the leading companies in the industries that they are in. So think about this. If you were going to be in a, in a hotel business and you were going to look at the economics and the dollars made in the hotel business, I would suggest to you that it's highly likely over a long period of time that Marriott will have better returns and make more money in the hotel business than anybody else. They're number one. 
So they have the best economies of scale, sure. um, and they're good at what they do, which is how they got to be number one. CarMax, similarly, is the largest used car company, and I would suggest to you that given their economies of scale, the, the deal flow that they have, the market knowledge that they have, that their returns in the used car business will be the best of anybody in the used car business. And was it any coincidence that Berkshire Hathaway went out and bought something like the second biggest used car dealership well, in I, the country? Well, I, I can't attest to that because you'll, you'll have to wait until you get Mr. Buffett here on your program, and then you can ask him. No, but I wonder you know, if they, these great minds <laughs> think alike, you know, if he's trying to crib from if he's looking at your your exam. Well, the point, the point I was making, and I think he, if he was here, he would probably agree with me, is that the leading companies tend to have the best economics in the industry that, that they are in. So if we have an array of number one companies, and we bought them gradually and incrementally and periodically through dollar cost averaging for very you know, basic term over long periods of time, what's going to happen is our returns are going to converge with what the intrinsic returns of those businesses themselves are. Mm. And if we have a kit bag of, of number ones, that's like having uh, a, a, a football team with a star quarterback and a star running back and a star set of offensive linemen. But say something like a Disney doesn't keep you up at night. We've talked about it on this show quite a bit. Their, their cash cow ESPN is really jeopardized. It's losing subscribers. People are cutting the cord. Uh, TV they're wondering about. I mean, they're they're increasingly going on the offensive against Netflix. So you saw the Netflix numbers are gangbusters, but they want to reinvent kind of a Disney version of Netflix to wall off their valuable Disney War, you know, Disney Wars, I call it, um, you know, Disney and Star Wars franchises. There's a lot of disruption in that business. And it's not a I understand it's a leader, but it, it's it's isn't it eminently disruptible? Well, it does uh, not keep you up. Well, here's a story that I'll tell you that's one of the dumbest things I ever did, and this would date back all the way until 1982. Oh. And I was a student at UVA at the time, and I was taking a finance class, and the uh, there was a project assigned, and you had to pick a company and analyze this company and write a report about it. And the company, I can't remember where I picked it or was assigned to me, was Disney and back in 1982. Now, that was the time at which uh, Walt Disney had already died, so it had passed on from Walt Disney. Michael Eisner and his partner, I think Frank Wells, were, were running the company, but they weren't well-known yet, and it was very early days in, in their time, so it wasn't clear as to how successful they would ultimately be. I remember writing the report, and I was fairly negative on it, and I came up with this concluding phrase of saying, you know, for Disney to succeed or to expect that to happen is like asking the children of Beethoven to write the 10th, 11th, and 12th <laughs> symphony. Now, that's a fun line, and it's a cute line, and I probably got a good grade on the paper, but it was a stupid conclusion because the <laughs> fact of the matter is, um, you know, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells did indeed, in essence, write the 10th, 11th, and 12th symphonies, and then Bob Iger, after him, uh, has created a wonderful set of returns and strategic moves one right after the other. So at any given point in time, it always looks like we're at the end of the road. But what I'm really betting on and really thinking is going to happen is that Bob Iger and the people who follow him will have the same degree of creativity and looking at the world as it is and as it changes and coming up with good plans and actions and adaptations uh, to continue to build a good business for a long period of time. Let's stress test that. Suppose Rupert Murdoch came to you. Suppose you had the balance sheet and the cash flow to buy his film studios and all the other assets he was selling outside of Fox News or whatever it was uh, a month or so ago. Would you have done that? 
well, if you're asking me to opine on the deal that's on the table right yeah, now. Yeah, for example, if you were an activist investor, if if Bob Iger cared enough about what Tom Gaynor, his prestigious investor, was thinking, would you have advised them to do that or no? Well, Where should they take their, their moated cash flows? What should they invest in? Well, I think that what they should invest in is what they think they can earn the best returns on over a long period of time. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I'm not close enough to the details of that transaction to have an opinion on that. But I do have an opinion that for 40 or 50 years, when confronted with those sorts of decisions, they've made good ones. Hmm. So I'm, I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt that this is a good one as well. Tom Gaynor, we have a few minutes left with you. I'd like to open it up. Uh, there are a lot of things for as much as we talk about record high stock markets and Donald Trump running victory laps in Davos. And even though you know these things don't really correlate to what the presidential administration is doing, the Fed is kind of taking its time still in raising rates. We're still nowhere near um, where interest rate policy was before the financial crisis in absolute terms. Um I sense that there is a lot of trepidation from investors and business owners, especially a worry about cash. Um, there's this fear of cash. Like if I suddenly were to sell a business, where am I going to put the money? Um, there's a huge reinvestment risk. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I feel like I've been penalized, for example, as a saver. I never indulged in you know subprime siren calls and all-day mortgages and whatnot. And I've while I've kept a good chunk of money in an index portfolio, what I've had in the bank has earned nothing. Well, you're exactly right about that. And I do think that the repression of interest rates that took place has indeed uh, penalized savers. So the recovery is built on the back of, of savers to some degree. And I, I don't like that. But there's that also, just like the first list of macro things that you talked about, those are things over which I have no control. I, I've dealt those cards and I have to play the, the, the cards that are dealt to the best of my ability. So Frankly, to answer your question about all these other things, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about them because it's the reality of what is and what can I what can I do specifically that would seem like a good idea no matter what happens in any of the macro sort of factors that you listed. Mm. And I'm going to make you cringe by asking you this, but it's no secret that Warren Buffett, your hero, is 87 years old. He bought an asset here in the Richmond Times-Dispatch as part of a newspaper group. I don't know how well it's done for him. He's no stranger to this area with Ted Wechsler. His, his loyal deputy spends a lot of time in Charlottesville and in Richmond. What if, Mr. Gaynor, they were to come and knock on your door? You're Tom Gaynor, but taking about quite some time off. I, I think you, you are the heir apparent. <laughs> what would you make of that, well, sir? That's, that's not going to happen. I mean, they, they have clearly set out a succession plan. They have uh, talented and able executives running the insurance business, the non-insurance businesses, making investment decisions. So they're, well, they're I, packed I, you know, and loaded you know, together. Uh, that, that's all fine, Danny, but I, I, I don't know about that all. You know, let, let me push back on that, uh, Tom. Uh, you know, we got Sue's Candies. We got, uh, uh, you know. Well, another thing, it's a complimentary insurance line, and uh, you can come in, and you can, you can even do this out of Richmond if you want. Well, again, I'll, I'll quote my my comedian hero, Stephen Wright, you know, what if there were no hypothetical questions? <laughs> Close us out. Any predictions? What are things that keep you up at night? What are things that get you excited? Um, people seem to be talking about the markets again, but it's nowhere near what I remember in kind of my market coming of age where people would pull me aside at cocktail parties to talk about Cisco and Yahoo at the turn of the century. We're kind of not there yet from a sentiment perspective. Well, um, what 
I do get excited about is that life is getting better. It really is. And people wring their hands and get too negative about things uh, on, a, on a general basis. And the two stories I, w- I would tell to support that, there's a wonderful book called The Rational Optimist by Matthew Ridley. And it talks about technology and the pace of change. But the fact of the matter is what's really happening is with each new technology and the pace of change is that somebody comes up with something and every, almost instantaneously, absolutely everyone else all around the world becomes aware of it. And as they become aware of it, they try to adapt it and make it better. So this this 24-hour cycle of interconnectedness actually is, in evolutionary terms, speeding things up and things that are better persist and last, and things that are worse go away. So uh, that in and of itself is the basis for tremendous optimism. And the, the other thing I, w- I would joke about in, in, a, in a less serious term than a serious book like The Rational Optimist is, uh, again, if you, if you look back not that long ago, and if you watch something like The Mary Tyler Moore Show, uh, in that Mary Tyler Moore Show, I don't, I don't know if you remember Ed Asner's role as, as, as Lou Grant running the running the, uh, the, the news room there, there was an episode where his age came out, and he was 48 years old. And picture in your own mind what Ed Asner slash Lou Grant looked like at age 48 in the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Now, walk around <laughs> Richmond, Virginia today, walk around New York City, walk around anywhere you want, and look at people who are 48 years of age today. It's amazing to me the increase in lifespans, the increase in health, all of those sorts of things which are happening uh, are happening for a reason, and it's a very positive reason, and I see no reason why that won't continue to extrapolate um, at a reasonably good clip into the future. Are the Markel brothers going to artificially replicate you? I mean, when you decide you don't want to be doing this much? <laughs> well, they're Markel cousins, not Markel. The cousins, the, sorry. Not their brothers. <laughs> Steve and Tony. So, uh, so I... I, I I'm not signing up for any genetic experiments. <laughs> you, sir, are a gentleman, and you're great to put up with me. You're great to—I'm still flattered that you answered my calls years ago. You had breakfast with me, and I finally horse-collared you to come in on this on this show, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Thanks so much. Fun to be here. Full disclosure, our engineer, a venerable man indeed, is John Valentine. Catch us and love us on NPR One. It's a great app. Subscribe on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Linger on Twitter at FullDRadio and on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, look, this show enjoys a wide mode and trades at a fraction of liquidation value. In other words, sponsor us. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Don't you know, it's a change.